Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. My name is Sanjoy Sanyal, and I'm the founder of Regain Paradise, a climate finance consulting firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Our guest for today is Andre Menendez, the co-founder and CEO of Tyndall, which makes ridiculously good chicken from plants. Welcome, Andre. Hi, Sanjoy. Very happy to be here with you. Thank you. Let's start by asking you, how do you make plant-based chicken? That's a great question. And it's actually very logic because if you think about the way we've been traditionally making chicken was basically getting plants, water, time and energy, feeding into animals. And then we would slaughter the animals with our basically the technology, the birds, right, to produce it. What we do is basically we take the birds out of the equation and we go straight to the plants, understand what are the processes that could transform those plants straight into food. And then we make it straight into, in a much more efficient way, exactly what consumers want from chicken as an ingredient instead of the bird. That's how we do it. And if you think about technology, primarily extrusion is the technology we use to give the texture. Right. So when you say you go to the plants, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the plants you go to? And aren't all these plants, you know, normal agricultural crops? Absolutely. We are very pragmatic on what we use and we have designed the product that consumers can be absolutely comfortable and safe eating and also the ability to really serve around the world without any you know, regulatory restrictions. That means that all the ingredients we use are highly recognizable common ingredients that you would see being used for decades and they are not genetically modified. We don't need novel food certification or anything of the sort. Um, therefore, it's a product that is using normal plant as you know, nothing uh, novel or no magic ingredient, let's call it this way, that would require us to get sort of regulatory approval. The ingredients that we're using today are primarily uh, soy, water, sunflower oil, coconut fat. There's a bit of wheat in our product currently, uh, old fiber, methylcellulose, natural flavoring. But I guess what is important to, to share with you is that our company is not a company that's ingredient or technology specific. Our goal is always to deliver what consumers are looking for and on a commercially viable way that product is nutritious and delicious. Today, those are the ingredients we're using. In the future, this may evolve, change, improve, or maybe it will just keep as such if there's nothing better ever invented. So the ingredients that you use today use extrusion technology, but you know, to get the same product, it is possible to substitute those agricultural crops, maybe depending on, for example, in, in one particular region, one crop is more abandoned. Is that the type of reason why you'd substitute one crop for another? There could be many reasons why we could one day choose to do that. Uh, right now, we only use one recipe and our product is made of that recipe as this is the one that delivers all the attributes we were looking for. But to your point, yes, we could technically develop products that with different crops for different reasons. Obviously, whenever you have a change of ingredients, there would be change in taste profile, texture profile, uh, nutritional values and all that. Therefore, the change is not, every change really matters and impacts the product. It's not an easy change if you want to achieve the same result. But if you are seeking for even better results and you found a different crop that would fit that possibility, then yes, it's possible to change it. Okay, got it. And so and I like the way you describe the product as a recipe. Tell us a little bit about this initial recipe development. I also noticed that today you put out a LinkedIn post that you are a year old. 
So congratulations. You know, if you started a year back, you know, how long does it take for you to get your product out and start customer trials? Yeah, I think we, today we actually complete one year since we first launched Tingo globally, which happened in Singapore exactly one year ago. So the development process started, I guess, the most important thing was the, was the understanding uh, in depth of what consumers and customers are looking for around the world. What are the regulations? What are the nutritional values we would be seeking and parameters? From there, we have used our technology and our knowledge, you know, a very experienced R&D team and our CTO to then solve for those problems and the design parameters that we have put in place. That means we looked at chicken as the category that we want to start with, that's Tingo. And we understood that chicken basically is loved for three reasons. One, it's the fibrous aspect of its texture. Another one is the taste and smell, which are both attributed to the chicken fat. And then number three is the versatility. Very different from red meat, which usually people would prefer to eat like a steak that is not highly seasoned or anything. There is more value in keeping it as close as possible to its um, natural shape and format. For chicken, people expect it to be innovative, to be served in different ways with different recipes, different cuisines. So we understood those three pillars. We got our technology to work. And then we developed our processes, our recipes, our ingredients to get to the final stage. That process uh, happened throughout 2020. And then we had the product launch happening in March 2021. That was a bit of the journey prior to launching. Great. You know, there are a couple of things that you brought up in this intervention of yours, but I would try and pick out a few things. First of all, you talked about the versatility of chicken. And that's, I think, a very important point. The one thing about chicken is that there is chicken and there is chicken, you know, there is chicken fry, and then there is sweet and sour chicken, and then there is chicken tikka masala. So what you're saying is that your chicken is the same for all these dishes, is it? That's absolutely right. And uh, I guess this this is one of the breakthroughs that we have brought to the market. If you think about what's previously done in plant-based foods successfully would be, for example, the American companies, you know, there are two leading companies that have made their reputation at the back of delivering very credible beef burgers and, and ground beef. And they made their, their contribution to the entire world in showing everyone that plants could be made out of it. But that was beef burger and, and minced beef. There is another category of animal, right? Chicken that is actually fully global, that is um, considered local in every single cuisine, that as you mentioned a few examples, it's truly present from anywhere, from Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all the way to, to the US, uh, going through Asia, Middle East, India, you know, Europe, Africa, Brazil, Argentina, whatever. Chicken is truly global in animals. There's no religion restrictions provided obviously the restrictions that attribute to vegetarianism but chicken is that global protein right so we have understood in that the chicken and its global um, characteristics and then versatility came as this key component because each cuisine has a different representation of it but all of them are actually chicken right i mean yes some prefer breasts some prefer legs and wings but in general chicken meat is chicken meat and yes to your question our product is the same one being sold for every market and being used for all those different recipes the product is really made just like raw chicken, so chefs can really add their identity, their cuisine, their preparation, their recipe to it in form of a dish. And obviously that makes the product truly scalable globally, which is, which is fantastic. But the reason I bring up this question to you specifically is the following. You mentioned, and I think everybody understands, that in plant-based food and plant-based meat, 
the important thing is to give the customer the seamless experience. Now, for example, we had on our podcast sometime back, a person from Thailand for whom the business is not about you know, replicating chicken so much as to be able to replicate the specific dish. He's trying to give customers not just chicken, but the basil chicken fry, which as you know, is available in all street corners of Thailand. So you would say your approach is a little different, right? From that particular sort of marketing approach. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. While obviously we understand and respect and admire any approach that is made towards, you know, a more sustainable food system, such as this example you brought, our take is a bit different. And we wanted to make sure that our product could be really made using the chef's recipes and, you know, bringing that food experience that you can only have at a restaurant to consumers. And the reason why we were so adamant about it, although that's obviously a much more challenging bar to reach, it's because consumers have been used to plant-based meats being highly compromising in terms of taste and texture and experience, whereas meat, on the other hand, has been for decades the aspirational ingredient that everyone brings to their table when you're hosting a special guest, when you're going out for dinner, it's the center of the plate. So for us, we needed to perform at that level first. And for us to perform at the level first, we would we develop a product that chefs with and for chefs, that chefs can really develop their recipes with it, therefore bringing their own identity at the best locations to consumers first. That's how we decided to do it. But again, I'll do respect to, to any approach out there and we do admire and, and we feel um, great that people are trying different approaches around the world. Right. And, you know, different approaches need to be tried because, you know, this is food is you know, so inherent in culture and tradition. So it will be very surprising if there is just one dominant approach. It's great that you brought this different approaches up. Obviously, one of the things going back to that R&D discussion that you had had, because you are making a product that could that could work in you know, various geographies. That's perhaps the reason you spent the whole of 2020 sort of figuring that out, right? Can you give us a little insight into what all happened in that year in terms of the R&D and the customer trials? You know, just give us a few stories if you can. Absolutely. So the shortest version of our history, and I'm going to get into more details about 2020 for you, was the year that we have set the basics for our build and success. 2021 was the the year that we tested all of those hypotheses and systems and made sure that product would be loved in different geographies, that our go-to-market strategy would work, that we produce and transport and deliver and supply chain would work. That's year number two, 2021. As a company, right, that was the year of the launch. Then 2022, where we are right now, is then the year that we scaled this up across the most relevant markets on Earth, namely US, UK, Germany. So to your question back to 2020, when I say that it was the year that we were preparing the fundamentals, that's the year in which we have designed our business plan, our go-to-market strategy, our ambitions, our business model, our value chain. We have developed the, the product, the prototypes. We have you know, tested it, scale up, and formed our manufacturing agreement with our current partner. And that was a process that obviously took the entire 2020. Uh, we started the company April 2020, and we only launched the product in March 2021. So you can imagine all the steps that went into that, from developing the suppliers, developing the recipes, testing in different ways, bringing up to chefs and restaurants in Singapore, different cuisines from Chinese, Indian, Western burgers, anything that we could find different. And we were very happy with Singapore being able to offer us all of that at the highest level. So we could take those parameters back into the, the prototypes, get them refined, improve, and then scale up. 
that was the journey that happened in 2020 for us to prepare for the launch in March 2021. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine 2020, you know, the middle of the pandemic, you're sort of developing a product in your R&D lab and you're taking it to, let's say, one Chinese uh, chef or restaurant. He or she says, you know, this is good, but it don't work for the Kung Pao chicken. And then you're taking it to some Indian restaurant. They say it don't work for the butter chicken. Is that the type of thing that happened? Very interesting question, Sanjay. And in fact, a lot of that has happened indeed. Interestingly enough, for example, an Indian chef that we worked with since the beginning and still our customer, Chef Manjunath Mural, he's a four times Michelin star, Indian cuisine, incredible chef, extremely talented. And we brought it to him and he was very happy that he worked with his butter, with his signature butter chicken recipe. And then we brought it to, to the Priva group in Singapore and they had different applications from Kung Pao chicken, you know, coincidentally, as you said, all the way to Japanese katsu curry. And uh, the feedback was when we reached the, the current Tindo design concept, the feedback that made us very happy is because all of them said, that works in my kitchen, that works for Kung Pao, that works for Japanese katsu curry, that works for butter chicken, that works for a taco, that works for a burger. And this is when we realized we were able with that design concept of what then became Tindo, we were able to realize that we had found the breakthrough and the path to deliver on our strategy. And as you can imagine, obviously 2021 was a very interesting year because all of that was happening while uh, we started the company in the middle of lockdown, the kitchens were closed and uh, restaurants were closed and no dining allowed. It was a uh, very interesting and challenging year for us, but we managed to go through it very well. So because the restaurants were closed, I understand you actually took over a restaurant, right? And put your equipment in and tested the products. Yeah, indeed. We wanted to build our R&D center in Singapore, but back that time was at the highest point of the pandemics and we couldn't get labor to construct any space. We couldn't even visit the locations that were potentially, you know, suitable for us to build our indie center. So we have uh, really used our creativity and entrepreneurial spirit to find a solution for that. And the solution came from the fact that obviously there were so many kitchens in the central district area that were basically fully empty and the, the restaurants were paying their lease to the landlords and they had no business anymore, but, but the kitchen was fully assembled, all the electricity, utilities, all set. So we actually took over part of a kitchen in a social kitchen setup in OUE downtown gallery in Singapore, very close to the Marina Bay area. And we started our indie from there. We brought in our equipment, we brought in what we could. And uh, in the middle of CBD in Singapore, it's where we developed the first bench prototypes um, of Tingo. Amazing how people innovated, right? I can well imagine an empty CBD, empty Marina Bay where millions of people walk every day, every hour. And you're developing this product because uh, the restaurant is fully equipped, actually. Wonderful. Moving away from the process of getting the product out, and talking about its benefits, a lot of our audience know about the climate benefits of switching from meat, but are there nutritional benefits as well? And great question. As a design parameter, what we were very adamant about was to make sure that the product, whatever product we develop as a company, is at least as good as an animal farmed equivalent, right? So never worse. And that's the, the founding principle of every product we, we start with. And then from there, obviously it can be better and it is better in some aspects. So when I say at least as good as is because, well, a truth be told, chicken is, you know, very well loved 
for its high protein content, for its low, you know, low fat and low calorie. And we wanted to make sure that we would address those and be able to be at the same level. So we did. We have exactly the same amount of protein, about 17%, 6% fat, exactly the same as a skinless chicken meat, roughly the same calories. But then we went further, obviously, because it's coming from plant, there's no cholesterol, right? And that makes it even better on that front. There's less cholesterol or zero cholesterol, whereas chicken has cholesterol. So it's better from that aspect. We also, obviously, since we're making it from plants, instead of just being the result of the genetics of a bird, uh, we also have oat fiber. Uh, therefore, there is digestive fibers, which is great, whereas chicken has zero, right? So those are the aspects that we have used for solving. And there's another topic that's very hot in the industry is obviously sodium. And we were careful as well to make sure that the sodium levels were low. In fact, they're as low as a very lightly brined chicken product or a chicken dish, right? So from that perspective, it's a low level of sodium, similar fat calories and protein, and obviously zero cholesterol. That's, that's our uh, nutritional profile with Tindo. Right. And of course, just because a product is good, both for the person as well as the environment, does not mean that it is easy to sell. So let's talk a little bit about marketing. One of the things that you said earlier was that you worked with celebrity chefs and you got endorsements from them. How important was that in your strategy? It's interesting because it's normal for many people to take for granted that all you need is a good product and everything is, is going to be huge and, and done, right? But that's not really the case. There are many cases that of great products that were stagnant for so long and then they had a turnaround in terms of communication scale up distribution whatever it is those additional components that made them become huge global leaders and in our case we see that since the beginning as a fundamental aspect you know not only marketing but also how we scale up the business how we do distribution what's our go-to-market strategy how do we fund the company how do we build our finance supply chain backbone for all of that and in terms of marketing you asked specifically about celebrity chefs i think Super important. It's not about celebrity chefs for us. It's about great chefs that carry mission alignment. They carry vision alignment, that they are great in their trade, uh, in their craft. So we have chefs from restaurants who are absolutely supportive to Tindo since day one. And then you have some big names in the industry. I mean, more recently, we had obviously the announcement of Chef Rocco and Chef Andrew Zimmer here in, in the US. But I guess what's fundamental here is that it always starts with them testing and loving the product. And then our sort of engagement with Chef is always genuine. It's always built on a genuine basis. And it's also in line with their own mission and values. It's never an advertisement kind of thing. That's not what we do. And that we don't even have any of those contracts anywhere in the world where we're doing advertisements for Chef. We're actually getting chefs who are extremely mission and vision aligned, extremely strong in their own craft, and they love Tindo to be part of our journey. That's what we do. It's truly important because they are the highest level of performance for, for the market that we develop our product for, right? And they represent and they communicate what is it that Tindo is really possible to do with Tindo, right? That, that's fundamental to our strategy. I really like the fact that these, um, they're not early adopters, but they're strong influencers and their vision and mission align with your company. This is really important in the, in the climate area. So, you know, you started in Singapore working with celebrity chefs, and then you expanded quickly into several countries in the world, right? You know, it just seems that the product was flying out. One thing I was curious to understand is how did you build distribution chains? Excellent question again, because 
if you understand the background as it looks like you do, it's not easy to set up a global business and to develop distribution and go-to-market strategy across multiple countries. So we have designed our value chain in our business to be scalable and global since day zero. And that was the problem that we're solving for, right? So we are completely asset light business, only focus on the IP portion of product development, marketing communication, and then the management of all this chain of operations. With that, we were able to work with great partners that could put the product together for us with the ingredients that we have developed, with the process we have developed. And then we go into each one of the markets we find suitable distributors and partners that we can work with and they will operate the distribution in market right so i mean we have great partners for example in singapore we hong kong with classic fine foods in malaysia as well and then in amsterdam we have a few distributors we work with here in, in the us we have signed with dot foods as redistributors obviously now this is expanding to many distributors down the line that's how we work and cooperate to build a distribution network so these are distributors, the way you are saying it, they're also manufacturers as well, right? Or they could be a, both. No, we have separate distribution and manufacturers are separate for us. We have a similar sort of agreement. One on the upstream, obviously producing the product uh, on our behalf uh, under our command and, and, and instructions. That's the production portion. And then in market, we have each market, we have a distribution partner or a few distributors that we work with depending on, on the market, uh, but they are different companies. Great. And then uh, the regulatory approval in different countries for plant-based meat, how hard or difficult is that? If you are using as a company a product that's not yet established and commonly used by the industry, it may be very difficult. But because of that, we have decided not to take that route. Our route was basically to use ingredients that were not genetically modified, that were not novel ingredients. And then, you know, our focus was to obtain the product we were aiming for via a very specific food process in terms of how do we what's the right temperature and time and pressure to get the you know the beans into the certain texture and all that what are the best beans to get the best taste profile once you, we, we put the product together right and in our case given the fact that we have chosen this strategy there's absolutely no barrier for regulatory barrier for our products and basically anywhere in the world we can we can have our product team and that is why you brought up the point about uh using commonly available agricultural crops as the basis for your recipe right at the beginning of this podcast, right? Exactly right, yes. And some countries do restrict certain crops. Some countries do restrict genetically modified crops. So we went to the most commonly accepted ingredients and, and combinations so we could truly be global since day one. Getting back to Singapore, I can imagine the working out of the kitchen in Central Business District. But how did the Singapore ecosystem help you in the early stages? I guess it's interesting because back then when we started the, the journey that was, you know, early 2020, a lot of people asked us, why Singapore? Uh, it's such a small market and, and all that. But it was clear to us since the beginning that it was a very relevant sector for Singapore to develop. And that when Singapore sets itself to develop a certain sector, be obviously like port or uh, fintech or finance in general, banking, port, Singapore, even the airport, Singapore 
it has shown its ability, semiconductors, right? It has shown its ability to become a world leader in everything they, they decide to do. So for us, it was very clear since the beginning that that would be the case for food technology. That's why we have chosen to be in Singapore, not to mention the obviously the known facts about Singapore is it's easy to do, you know, to do business. There's ability, you know, there's enough availability of funding talents, global talents. And in our case, being with food, it's a foodie haven. So for us, that was an easy decision. And then what we've seen from there is this ecosystem developing, and we're glad to be collaborating with that as well. So if you ask how has this uh, ecosystem helped us so far, it has helped us in every single area you can imagine, from, from the funding to the talent attraction to um, you know, R&D now that we're working uh, closely to build it up with the Temasex Asia Sustainable Foods Platform. All of it is basically coming out of Singapore, and we're extremely grateful to, to be part of that ecosystem. The Temasex you know, Asia Sustainable Food Platform is obviously very interesting. How are you involved there? Asia Sustainable Foods Platform from Masek is a, it's an entity with the mission of driving, accelerating the adoption of sustainable foods in, in, in primarily in Asia. That will include many different fronts, right? So be from investment in companies all the way to R&D centers that companies could leverage and use or manufacturing facilities. Our involvement is very close to the Asia Sustainable Foods Platform uh, team and company. Even sitting on our board today, we have the CEO of it. Matt is, uh, is one of our board members. Masek obviously is one of our investors. And we are building our R&D, our global R&D center at the ASF facility. So all of this is already happening and this is only the beginning. I am 100% sure that the plans are completely complementary and we will be able to, in a way, help each other. We as a company will help ASF in its mission and ASF in its context and abilities will help us grow in faster and better than we would by ourselves without them. Great. And you know, when I realized that Singapore would be a great place for plant-based meat, that was several years back, maybe you know, in this pandemic time, time has flown, it's about four years back, actually. When I traveled to Singapore, the place I stay is in is on Ben Cullen Street, just off Boogies. As I got off the bus, I realized on that street, there are two vegetarian Chinese restaurants and fully packed with local Singaporeans. So that's when I realized, you know, Singapore is getting something in this plant-based meat, which is very interesting. So I'll end on a personal note, and on a personal note, as a Brazilian who lived in Singapore for a few years, what is it that you like about Asia's favorite island city? Singapore actually became home to me over you know six years living in Singapore. Uh, it's the place where when I travel back, I really feel like I'm arriving back home. It's, I think, it's hard to describe. Uh, if you live in Singapore, it's almost, you know, learning how well a country could be run when they, obviously, as a city-state, it's incredible to see their long-term uh, perspective, their ability to design long-term strategies, long-term views, and align policies around it and execute it at the highest level. It's, it's a highly educated population. It's an incredible place to live. It's, it's predictable. It's safe. It's transparent. Great to do business. Incredible. Um, I would say that prior to living in Singapore, I thought many of those things were simply not possible due to the fact that the challenges that naturally would come managing a country. But when I moved to Singapore, I realized that they have managed to build country based on my previous framework would be just not possible, right? If you think about Singapore as a country without, there's no land, right? It's such a small area. So there's no really not a lot of natural resources, no oil, not even, you know, its own source of fresh water, no massive source of energy, 
and still it's one of the richest countries in the world with a highly educated population, help from many things, extremely efficient. And, and that's one side of it. The other side, obviously, it's a hot spot for cultures. It's really, it's a melting pot of different cultures, cuisines, people from all around the world and incredible brains. It's just a joy to, to live in Singapore and to, and to be part of that place as, a, as calling it home. And what is your favorite hawker in Singapore for food? And that's a very hard question. There are so <laughs> many. Um, when I used to, to work in, in the West, in, around Jurong, I would go every day to different hawker centers and, and try different food. I guess from the, the West Coast market to I guess, the Bung uh, Gardens, there are so many with uh, Iraja that are very good, each one of them with their own strength. And then if you go to the maybe like an old airport road, hawker center, I think you're just going to find a different sort of cuisines. I don't know. I wouldn't say I have a favorite hawker center. I have many favorite stalls across different hawker centers with different sorts of cuisines. I can well imagine. We've come to the end of the podcast and I'm going to ask you, is there one last message that you would like to leave for our audience today? Yes, I guess it's important for everyone to understand that what we're living right now is the transition of a highly unsustainable technology that has served us, you know, over the last hundreds and thousands of years, which is animal farming. It really served us to, to get to where we are at a very high cost to the planet. True, but just like in the past before internal combustion engines became, became more efficient, we were using coal to move stuff around and we have evolved that to better fuels and now we're moving towards electricity. That reality also applies for, for, for food in general. And what we have to take into consideration is that this is a, it's a shifting paradigm. It's a very huge transformational society change which is basically challenging and changing a paradigm that's been there for decades centuries if not even a few thousands of years that takes time the tipping point is happening right now but it's really a generational shift and we are at the prime moment of being able to see the, the birth of that every single education every single information we have out there getting the clarity of all that it's a very helpful it's food is so close to everyone's heart Technology is already enabling us to produce absolutely great experiences without the animals anyway. So it's just being open-minded and, and recognizing that it's the beginning of a journey that will hopefully change the world in the next uh, 10, 20, 30 years. It's not a short stink. It's a marathon. It's not a three-year, five-year thing that will suddenly take over the entire you know, animal farming industry. It's really a few decades in which hopefully a relevant portion of what today is supply via animal farming will then transition into a more sustainable food system. I would hope that there is a clear understanding from the audience and from there we all build it together as a, as a community. With that, thank you very much, Andre. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you and likewise, Santos.